Good morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 28. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your stony heart from your body and replace it with a living one. And I will give you my spirit so that you may walk according to my regulations and carefully observe my case laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Eric, and God is good this morning. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Since childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures that help you to be wise in a way that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Jocelyn. If you have, are able, please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is found in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord. Would you please remain standing with me as we pray today. Before we pray and ask God to speak to us today, I want to take a moment and pray uh, for what's been happening in Memphis uh, over the last several weeks and Uh, the video that was released um, this week showing what happened to uh, Tyree Nichols and take a moment to sit in silence in that and then to pray for um, all of those who are impacted. There's a cascading effect around uh, events like this that uh, cause emotions um, and all kinds of uh, remembrances and other things that have happened. And so we wanna pray for comfort for those who are grieving We want to pray peace for those who find themselves afraid um, and asking God to bring justice for those who find themselves angry today at all that has happened. Uh, So let's take a moment in silence and then pray over uh, Nichols' family in the city of Memphis. God of all comfort, we ask that you would be near to the brokenhearted right now. Those who are grieving 
in profound and indescribable ways that you, God, would be near to them, that you would comfort them as they grieve. For all those who are experiencing fear, would you draw near in peace? For all of us who are angry, we join with the psalmist today and just say, how long, God? How long? We cry out to you and ask for justice. We cry out to you and ask for an end to all violence on the earth. We cry out to you and, and ask when, oh Jesus, will you come back? When will you set everything right again? And we pray those prayers, we hold also onto hope. And we remember the prophet Amos that said, there will be a day when justice flows like a river and righteousness like an unending stream. So God, we look forward to that day. We know the true justice, true righteousness and its full impact and full effect and its full fleshing out in all of our lives in the world will only happen when you come to set the world right. So we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Come, we so desperately need you. And today as we open your scriptures, we ask that you would come to us and that you, your work of new creation would happen in us that you would make us righteous, you would make us just, and you would teach us how to live faithful lives and teach us to be the kind of people, the church, that steps into the world's pain with the comfort and the hope and the care of Jesus Christ. Teach us and show us how to do that for one another, how to do that for our city and for our world. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you, New Life Downtown. Thanks for braving the cold and the snow and the ice. If you had any in your neighborhood, I know it's kind of different in every part of the city, but it's great to see you. For those of you who are at home, you're like, I can't make it out. We love you. We miss you. Hope that you're great, especially for those of you who are uh, dealing with any sickness right now. We pray for you. Hope that you will be well soon, and we look forward to seeing you back here as soon as you are able. Uh, one of the things that Sarah and I have a hard time agreeing upon is what to watch when it comes time to watch TV. Because we like completely different things. She likes to watch comedies and like food shows and cooking competitions, which just make me hungry. Is all that those things do. She, she likes those kinds of programs. And I like long, drawn out, like dark dramas. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want something where I'm going to have to watch it for six, seven, eight years to get some sort of resolution to the story. And she wants the resolution to happen, like, after that 30-minute episode. Like, we can just go on from there. And, but we both want resolution to happen. We just are looking for it in different ways. I like the long character development and long story arcs and the twists and turns. And there's nothing worse, though, than when you don't get that satisfaction. You get involved, like, 
interested in a television show and then all of a sudden the network cancels it. You're like, no, but I need to know how this is going to work out or the writers change and the whole story goes in some direction. Like, that's not true. Like, you can't do that on this thing. There's something about us that wants, though, to experience the satisfaction of some sort of resolution to things. And it's not just in entertainment. We look for that almost everywhere in our lives. In our workplaces, we are wondering how, how is the work that we're doing going to resolve? How is it going to be completed? How is it going to come to fulfillment? What do we need to do to get there? And sometimes we even wonder if it will get there or will we be around to see it when it gets to that place? Relationally, we carry around a lot of unresolved things sometimes. We are wondering how maybe today a friendship that maybe is difficult right now, we're wondering how it's going to resolve or a conflict maybe we're having with a spouse or with a child or with a roommate or a close friend. What, what's this going to look like? We're wondering maybe sometimes in our stories if we've gotten uh, a diagnosis of some sort or some news that we received and we're curious to know like where is this going and how's this story going to work itself out? What is that going to be? We're always sort of looking for that. And it's not just for ourselves. We're wondering what that means for the whole world, if we're honest. And some of our hope as Christians is that we believe that Jesus is the one who's going to make sense of it all. That as we think about this, our stories and we think about the story of humanity, we think about the story of creation and we get to a place of sort of going, but how is this all going to work itself out? We get glimpses of it throughout the scriptures, but the clearest thing that we get is an invitation to trust that Jesus is the one whose life and death and resurrection and ascension and return will actually make sense of all things. Today, we're in our third or fourth week, I think at this point, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We're beginning the year delighting in Jesus's words found in Matthew's chapters five and six and seven. I encourage you to continue to read and to memorize and to take parts of those passages and continue to meditate on them. Our hope and prayer is that as we read and study these words of Jesus, that they would hit us fresh and anew. These words can be really familiar to us. Like, oh, we've read this, we've studied this, we've been in six Bible studies and read four books. Others of us, it may be brand new, but as we think about the words of Jesus, what we want them to do is to challenge us, to teach us, to comfort us, to help us, to guide us, to direct us, to really let the words of Jesus settle in and do the work that the words of Jesus are meant to do in our lives. We've said throughout this series that the sermon really is Jesus's manifesto on kingdom discipleship. That the sermon in and through from start to finish is about discipleship in the kingdom of God. Jesus comes on the scene. He shows up and begins his public ministry by proclaiming the proximity of the kingdom. He says, repent, turn, because the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. He announces the kingdom's arrival and availability in a new way. And then he immediately starts calling disciples, people to come and to be his students, to be with him, to learn from him, how to live like him in 
the kingdom to show us what it's like to live under God's reign, under God's rule, inside of God's government, if you will. And then he begins the Sermon on the Mount proclaiming blessing, proclaiming divine favor in a section called the Beatitudes where over and over again he's proclaiming blessing. But what we saw is that he's proclaiming blessing in ways that sort of startle us, not in the ways that we normally think about it, but upon the least and the unlikely, upon situations that seem anything but blessed. Jesus says, blessed are you, in every person, in every situation, in every condition, not because those situations are blessed, but because the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God comes to everyone in every situation, in every condition. The kingdom of God is yours, he says, over and over again. Will you receive it? So the good news for us is that whoever we are and wherever we are and whatever we've done and whatever has been done to us, the kingdom of God is available in Jesus. The reign and rule and blessing of God is available to us. Then Jesus shifts from talking about that blessing to another idea of proclaiming that the kingdom of God is not only coming to each of us, but the kingdom of God is going to work through each of us. He says, not only are you blessed, but you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that the kingdom of God will actually work itself out into the world through the ordinary everyday lives of frail, fragile, vulnerable, finite people like you and me. And there's times where like, Jesus, really? Like, that's the plan? Couldn't you have come up with something better? But Jesus' insistence from the beginning of the scriptures all the way through is that God wants to work his plans and purposes into the world with us. He wants to do this in partnership, in relationship with us. We said last week, the way that the kingdom works itself out into the world is through our obedience to Jesus and through the good things that we learn to do in his name. But this raises one really big question a question that actually sort of haunts the pages of the New Testament is every writer is coming back to it in some way, talking about this big issue, which is if the people of God are now meant to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus and to be disciples of Jesus, then what does that mean for the Old Testament? What does it mean for Israel's scriptures? What does it mean for the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? What does it mean for Ecclesiastes and Job? What does it mean for all of those prophetic books? What does it mean for what the New Testament calls the law and the prophets as a way of summarizing that all of those scriptures? What is Jesus' relationship to that book, to those books, to those writings? And then as followers of Jesus, what's ours? How are we supposed to relate to these things? If you grew up in church or maybe you've been in church for a little bit or been hanging around for a while, especially maybe in evangelical Protestant circles, there's a common belief, a common way of sort of talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament that comes to us over the course of time through the reformers, through the writings of Luther and Calvin and the way that they maybe interpreted Paul or the way that people interpreted their interpretations of Paul, of course, has a much longer history, but the summary is this. The Old Testament is law, the New Testament is grace. 
The Old Testament is law. The New Testament is gospel. The Old Testament is bad news. The New Testament is good news. And sometimes it gets worded this way, that the purpose of the Old Testament is just to show us our need for Jesus. And then the purpose of the New Testament is to show us that we don't need the Old Testament anymore. And it's evidenced by the fact that if we pick up our Bible and hold it, there's one part that's really red and the other part that's real nice and crispy and unworn, that first two-thirds. There's an understanding sometimes that gets said that the Old Testament is, presents to us a religion that says you have to keep the law in order to earn God's grace. And that salvation is, happens by works, by the good things that we do. But the New Testament comes in and tells us that, no, 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 that's not the story, but that God freely gives us his grace, that he freely saves us by his grace. Not, and works don't have anything to do with it. Works are just optional extra credit for the Christian nerds in the room. You know, it's like, well, if you really want to go further, I guess you could do that. But be careful because it could be dangerous. You might start thinking you're earning it. So only volunteering kids ministry once a month because you don't want to go too far into this thing. And I would say to you this morning, I think that's overly simplistic. And oftentimes that way of talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament is a false dichotomy. It's not actually the way that this works out. A couple of quick examples in the Old Testament. If the Old Testament really was about earning your salvation, then, Jesus, then God would have given the law to Israel while they were in Egypt and said to them, and when you keep this covenant, then I'll rescue you. It's not how it worked. God graciously saved them, graciously delivered them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out of the house of slavery, brought them to himself and said, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. Here's how this will look. And then he gives the law to teach them how to live as free people. It comes after grace. There's grace throughout the Old Testament. In addition, the New Testament is fully dependent upon the Old it's quoting it all the time, alluding to it all the time, mentioning characters from it all the time. And the New Testament has commands. It has laws. It has instructions. It has places where Jesus says, I now command you this. You're like, well, wait a minute. It doesn't quite work out that simplistically. So there must be a more beautiful, a more robust way to think about how Jesus and the New Testament relates to the Old Testament and to history and how Jesus actually resolves these things. And Jesus gives us a hint in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is how he words it. He says, don't even begin to think that I've come to do away with the Old Testament. Don't think I've come to do away with the law and prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but instead I've come to fulfill them. And I say to you very seriously, that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter or even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything in it becomes a reality, until everything in it is accomplished. Jesus himself says, I didn't come to abolish or to cancel or correct or destroy or set aside or get rid of the Old Testament. Nor did Jesus come to simply repeat it or to say it better than somebody else had said it. Instead, Jesus says, I came, I came to fulfill it, to make it a reality, to accomplish it. So the whole passage that we're going to read really depends on those words. What does Jesus mean by saying, I've come to fulfill this? 
What does that then mean for Jesus's relationship to the Old Testament? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for ours? Then I want to say to you, I think there are at least four ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, fulfills the law and prophets. The first one is this, is that Jesus completes its story. None of us like unresolved stories. We don't want our story to be unresolved. We don't want the story of the world to be unresolved. And one of the things that is going on at the time of Jesus is he's coming into the world and into his public ministry. Israel's been sitting in a period of time where the Old Testament is closed several hundred years before. And they've been waiting, waiting and wondering, when's God going to fulfill his promises? When's God going to do what he said he was going to do? We're back in the land, but we're living under foreign rule and they're pagans and this isn't right and this isn't right and this isn't right. And all of these groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they're all trying to figure out how is it the kingdom of God is going to come and how is God going to resolve this? How is he going to bring his story all together? Because it's just not complete yet. And what we see in Jesus is that he comes to complete and resolve the story, not just the story of the Old Testament, but the story of the world and our story your story and my story. Every story finds its completion, its resolution in Jesus. The Old Testament itself is a narrative. Yes, it has laws and songs and prophecies and prayers and everyone's favorite genealogies and those long descriptions of how sacrifices work. But fundamentally, it is a story. It's the story of God and his people. It's the story of God creating the world good. And then all of his efforts to redeem and to restore what's been broken and the ways that he is going to bring the story to its completion. And what the New Testament claims to us, what Jesus himself claims to us is that Jesus is the climax and the conclusion of the story. That Jesus is how this story comes to its resolution. That Jesus himself is the resolution of the story. Everything that the Old Testament predicts and anticipates and foreshadows and hints at and glimpses at and nods at, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. This is a major emphasis for Matthew. It's why he begins with his own genealogy. Some of you are trying to read through the Bible in a year and you got to January 1st and your New, your New Testament reading, you're like, really? I'm gonna read the word begat 900 times? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And who begats anybody? What does that even mean? We get this long genealogy. Why, Matthew? Wasn't there like a better hook that you could start your story with? Couldn't you come up with, you know, like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Or, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Like anything other than a genealogy. Why? Because Matthew wants us to see Jesus in light of the whole story. He wants us to see how the promises made to Abraham and all the way through come to their completion, come to their fulfillment in Jesus. It's why as he's narrating Jesus' story, he's frequently then quoting the prophets and saying things like this. Now all of this took place, referring to his miraculous birth by the Virgin Mary. Now all of this took place, why? so that the, what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. That the story would come to its conclusion. Jesus is saying every bit will happen. 
every bit will become a reality. The first way that Jesus fulfills the law and prophets is that he completes the story. The second thing that we see is that Jesus satisfies its expectations. He satisfies its expectations. Expectations are a really difficult thing for us generally in life. Some of our greatest disappointment and hurt and pain that we experience comes in the form of disappointment when someone doesn't meet our expectations, when something doesn't meet our expectation. Sometimes it's with a spouse or a child. Sometimes it's with a friend. Sometimes it's a coworker that we have expectations for people. Sometimes we're not even aware of those expectations until they've been broken, until we've been let down. And then we're not sure how to move forward, how to walk through relationship when something is left unsatisfied. And as difficult as that is for us, perhaps maybe the most difficult thing is living with our own unmet expectations in ourselves of all the things that we believe that we should have been or that we should have done or that we should have done differently or that we should have lived up to. We sort of have these moments where we think, well, I had thought that by the time I was 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90, that this would be taken, that this is what my life would look like. This is what my vocation would look like. This is what my family would look like. This is what my investment portfolio would look like. This would be, you know, I would accomplish this thing or that thing. I would have checked off the 96 things on my bucket list. I would have, I would have had this. And then we find like, well, that didn't happen. Sometimes it's even deeper than that. We thought we'd be a particular kind of parent or a particular kind of spouse or a particular kind of friend or a particular kind of leader or something. And we find that we don't live up to our own expectations. And then we come to read the Old Testament and we encounter not just story, but we encounter expectations, commands and laws and rules and regulations and all of these things. And we read them and go, yeah, I don't, I don't live up to that. I don't meet that. I don't fulfill that. And we have ways where we carry around with us a sense of not measuring up. And the Old Testament has kind of confronts us with this over and over again. There's expectations for prophets. There's expectations for priests. There's expectations for kings. There's expectations for all of humanity of what it means to be made in the image of God. And then there's expectations for things like the temple and sacrifices. There's expectation and expectation and rule and regulation. And sometimes reading it can just be so hard because we look at it and say, well, what do we do with all of this? And then Jesus says, I've come to fulfill them all. I have come to fulfill every single one of those expectations. Jesus satisfies them all. Jesus does them all. Jesus meets them all. Jesus exceeds them all. Jesus fills them in ways that we never could even thought or imagined. And he fills them for us on our behalf. In all the places that we couldn't measure up to those things, Jesus stands in that place and fulfills all all of those unmet expectations that we carry around with. This is why one of the good news of the gospel is that there's forgiveness for all of those things. That Jesus has come to forgive them and to fill them that we might live free. That we might live in a different way because of Jesus. We even see it at his baptism as he's talking to John the Baptist. He says, I've got to be baptized, man. He says, allow me to be baptized now. Well, why? 
because this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness, all justice, all faithfulness. All of the hopes and expectations for humanity are fulfilled in Jesus. He fulfills it all for us. He fulfills it all on our behalf. Jesus fulfills, satisfies all of the expectations we see. But he goes even further, and there's a third thing I think we see in the sermon, that's that Jesus actually reveals the intentions for the Old Testament. He reveals the intentions for the law, that all of those expectations and rules and regulations and those things that we can kind of go like, ah, Jesus actually helps us to see what those things were originally meant for. The whole next section of the sermon that we're going to be diving into over the next few weeks features six times where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is quoting and interacting with and interpreting the Old Testament and talking about the Torah, talking about the law. The word Torah in Hebrew, we typically translate it as law for us, but it actually is probably better understood as teaching, better understood as instruction. The root word behind the word Torah actually means to throw or to cast or to shoot something at a target. What the law, what the Torah, what the instruction is meant to do is it's meant to aim us, to point us, to direct us at God's will, God's desire, God's plans and purposes for us. It's supposed to point us in a direction of saying, this is how to live. This is how to be human. This is what it means. So as God rescues them out of Egypt and gives them the law, he's saying, walk in this direction, walk this way. And what Jesus does is he comes and he fully reveals the aim. He fully reveals its intention. He highlights for us what the law was pointing to all the time. He takes it further and shows us the further, deeper, truer, more beautiful meaning behind all of this. We get a glimpse of it right away in the first one of these sayings that we're going to talk about next week, where it says, you've heard it said, do not murder. And Jesus says, well, that's not the end goal. The end goal is not just to not kill each other. That's a good goal, right? We should follow that. Like, let's not murder. But Jesus says, I say to you, don't even be angry. And then he goes on and he says even more things. You're like, what are you doing, Jesus? And he say, what that, that thing was pointing to was not just murder. Like, don't, don't just not murder. But my hope for you is that you would live in loving community with one another, that there's something that beyond that, that Jesus is showing us, revealing to us. So Jesus is not against the Torah. Jesus is not against the law. The New Testament is not against the Old Testament. What Jesus is against is incomplete, insufficient, incorrect interpretations. It's, instead of saying, that's where it's going, it says, let's go this way instead. Jesus is like, no, you got that wrong. This is God's design and intents. Jesus and the other writers love the Old Testament. It's his Bible. It's what he's reading and studying and memorizing and quoting because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. <laughs> this is the scriptures. When the New Testament is referring to the scriptures, guess what it's referring to? The Old Testament. Because they're still writing the rest of it. 
This is why Timothy says this. He says, every scripture, every scripture in the law and the prophets, everything in the Old Testament is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, for training in character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. It's meant to be a gift to us, a grace to point us in the right direction. And Jesus comes to fulfill that, to show us the full intent. And then the last thing that Jesus does is this, and perhaps the most radical for us most times, the one that we're not sure exactly how to hold on to, but Jesus actually enables its adherence. He enables its adherence, enables us to actually live in a different way, enables us to live in a way that is following the trajectory of those commands. Most of the times we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, we're like, oh yeah, the Beatitudes, so far so good. Salt and light, yeah, we like that. That sounds good. Jesus fulfilling the law, yep, that, that all sounds good. And then we get to verse 19. And Jesus says, therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I say to you, unless your righteousness, your faithfulness, your obedience, your adherence to the very ways and rhythms of God is greater than that of the legal experts and the Pharisees, then you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we're like, I'm gonna skip that part and go on to the next one. We're like, surely that's gotta be somebody other than Jesus saying that. Like that, that can't be right. This is supposed to be like all grace, no commands. What's Jesus telling us here? Jesus is telling us to keep and teach his commands. And his commands are in alignment and in fulfillment with the Old Testament commands. And he says that our righteousness, our coherence to the ways of God should exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the legal experts. And we're like, have you lost your mind, Jesus? This can't be right. But he says, as he reveals the fuller, deeper, truer, more beautiful meaning of the Torah, he then invites us to follow him, to live in adherence to that deeper, fuller way of life. And the Old Testament actually already told us this was coming. This was part of the story. Ezekiel puts it this way. God speaking to his people and said, hey, there's gonna be a day coming where I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put a new spirit in you and I will remove your stony, hard, resistant heart from your body and I'm going to replace it with a living one and I will give you my spirit. Why? So that you may walk, live in accordance, in harmony, in coherence with my regulations and carefully observe my case laws. This is what Jesus does too. 
Jesus comes to complete the story and he comes to satisfy all the expectations and reveal to us the greater and deeper meaning. And Jesus also comes to give us a new heart, a new spirit that we might actually live in a different way because we're working with a different operating system. (laughs) Because suddenly that that old, cold, hard, resistant heart of ours that's so bent on rebellion and doing our own way would begin to be softened by the very love of God. That Jesus would come and breathe new life into us, that he would actually give us a new heart, a new spirit, that he would renovate us from the inside out, that he would make it possible for us to live differently the ways that we maybe always hoped or dreamed and imagined we might live now become possible, not because we're trying harder, but because we're working with a different power. The spirit of God living inside of us. As Jen and the worship team and Sarah come forward, this is how Jesus fulfills this. He completes the story. He's gonna complete your story and my story. And Jesus comes to satisfy all those expectations And he does so on our behalf that we might experience freedom and forgiveness in this life, that we might know what it's like to have somebody do that for us. And he comes to show us the deeper, truer, more beautiful ways of God. And then he comes to say, and I'm gonna teach you and show you how to live that way. And I'm actually going to enable you to live in the way that you didn't think was possible. Because over the course of time, my love is going to come and pervade in your heart and your heart's gonna become soft and my spirit's going to fill you up and you'll find a year after following me, five years after following me, 10 years after following me, 20 years after following me, 40, 50 years, be able to look back and see, oh my goodness, look how the love and grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and strength of God has taught me how to live in the kingdom of God. He's changed my life. He's changed everything because he's come to fulfill it all. This is the great hope that we have in Jesus. But that comes in relationship and connection with him. It's why we come to the table every week that we might hear and receive once again the invitation from Jesus to be with him because he's the one that fulfills all of these things. When we partake in communion each week, this is one of the ways, one of the mysterious ways that a softening happens in us. And that's why we always proclaim over this space and over this time every week that this is Jesus's table. The work that's being done here is a work that was initiated by Jesus. And part of our response is is a, a saying yes to a willingness to be softened, a willingness to have some kind of a transformation happen in us that causes us to wanna follow Jesus in his ways. You'll see this as you look at each of these words in this liturgy, that that's what we're doing. We're aligning ourselves with the direction that Jesus is going, following him. 
So all who believe that Jesus is the true king of the world are welcome to partake here, to receive here, regardless of your church background or the affiliation that you have. If you don't believe as we believe, thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for choosing to be here on a Sunday morning. We're honored that you're here and encourage you to keep coming, keep asking questions about this Jesus. But if you are ready to believe, if something within you senses a softening occurring or just desires it, we invite you to join us as we confess our sin and ask for forgiveness and place our trust in Jesus again. The words of this prayer are gonna be on the screen. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. It is my joy this morning to announce good news to us. Words that are true, not because I or anyone else is saying them, but just because of what God has done. So if you want to receive this good news, you can physically respond by opening up your hands to receive again the mercy of God. Friends, Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And this proves God's love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. Amen. During this time that we're studying the Beatitudes, really from now up until Lent, we're gonna take this time um, to bless one another, to speak words of life and encouragement over one another. Um, I wanna speak a blessing over you now. You'll see on the screen that, that Jesus has given you a new heart and a new spirit to teach you and to help you live in accordance with his kingdom. As we stand together to offer peace, you can speak these words. You can um, just, you can speak a direct blessing to one another. Maybe there's something that you feel invited to share with someone about their life that blesses you and you wanna encourage them. Even a posture of peace toward one another is a beautiful, beautiful thing especially in this world and in these times. So I invite you to stand, to take a few minutes to bless and encourage and welcome one another. Friends, Jesus is here. 
lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is, let's do it, it is right. It's a good, it's a joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, for you formed us in your image. You breathed your life into us. And when our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. On the night that Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And during the meal, he took bread and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper was over, he took the cup of wine and after he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Not gonna touch these because I haven't washed my hands and my nose is now running, but I'm looking at all of these, these crackers, these simple gifts, and they represent for me, all of us, that when you receive this, when you have it dipped in the cup and you ingest it, Kyle, there's the love of God for you here. Zandy. Aaron, the love of God is here for you. Chrissy, that the love of God is here for you. It's a mysterious thing. So in remembrance of your mighty acts, God, through Christ Jesus, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died and Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. All of us who are in Christ are part of the priesthood of all believers. So we're gonna take this time now to bless these elements, to thank God for them. Would you stretch out your hands toward them or toward the heavens? God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us here and on these gifts of bread and wine, and may they be for us the body, the blood, the love of Christ power of Christ, that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood and by your spirit, make us one with Jesus, one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until you come back, Jesus, in final victory and we see you face to face. I'm gonna invite the servers up now. Friends, these are the gifts of God and they are given for us people of God. So as you receive them, receive them in remembrance that Jesus died for you. Feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. In just a moment, we'll come forward to receive 
beginning in the front of each section, you're gonna exit, thank you, you're gonna exit to your left and come forward. If you're in the balcony, you can join this section here on the right or there's a table with prepackaged elements at the entrance. If you're unable to come forward, please ask someone near you to bring the elements to you. There's the grace of God here for you. If you're not receiving, feel free to just come forward so that nobody trips over you in the rows, but then you can pass the servers on by and go back to your seat. If you are coming to receive, the first server is gonna take a, the gluten-free cracker, dip it in the cup of non-alcoholic wine, and then offer it to you. And you can receive the love of God right then and there. You can take it back to your seat and receive it with those that you came with around you. There's also some napkins on the from the dispensers if you need it. There's gonna be two stations, so just go back and forth between the two of them. And after we've all received, our ministry teams are gonna be available in the front. So if you'd like to pray with someone today, if you have something that you're celebrating in your life, if there's something that you're grieving, if there's discernment that is happening in your life right now, uh, allow one of our ministry teams to come alongside you in prayer, they're here for you. Let's worship together as we come to the table.